Contending for the faith one verse at a time. Thanks for joining us at Truth Matters Church, also at truthmatterschurch.org. As we continue expositing the book of Revelation, today we explore Christ's title as the Root of David. The Lord has many titles in Scripture, and we'll look at a few of them to see how they're related to Him being worthy to open the scroll as told in Revelation chapter 5. Leading our study, here is Pastor Alex Cantaroja. We are in Revelation chapter 5, and we last left off in verse 1, and today we will be picking it up from verse 2 and following. And the title for this study today is The Root of David Has Overcome. This will be the first part of our study of this portion of text. How many of us heard of the Root of David? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, He has a lot of titles, a lot of descriptive terms that are used to describe Him. And oftentimes, the titles is focused on a particular aspect of His deity and His humanity. In the case of this, He is, among other things, called the Root of David. What we're going to find is that this Root of David, this title, is rooted in the Old Testament. It is rooted in what the prophets of old have foretold concerning this son of David. There was a lot of different themes that I think are overlaid in this particular chapter, but when I was trying to reflect, what is the central theme of what we're about to cover today? If our Lord wasn't the root of David, who has overcome, then all of creation would be in a pickle. Saying it nicely. Another way to say it, if the root of David didn't overcome, then there's no hope for anyone to be saved. So there's going to be these turn of events in heaven, and we're going to allow the scene to unfold and let us begin now to under, try to grasp and understand this great vision that John had in heaven. And before we pick up in chapter 5, verse 2, we did only cover one verse last week, and we look closely at the book or scroll sealed with seven seals in the Father's right hand. And we learn that what was in the contents of that book or scroll was lamentations, mourning, and woe. And we also learned that it was the Father who was the author and the one responsible for writing such judgments in that book. And because the Father... The Most High is the final authority over all, even over His Son. Wrote it. It is final. It is irrevocable. When we get to the breaking of these seals and the events that happen, it is from the judgment decreed by the Father Most High. We're going to be picking it up in verse 2 when the scene continues to unfold and the angelic activity is going to pick up. And there's going to be a particular angel making a pronouncement. And we're going to then be introduced to a very special figure who had many designations, and one of them being the Root of David, hence the title of our study. 
So with that, let's begin to read the entire chapter to get ourselves settled once again in this scene in heaven. And then we will pick it up in verse 2. So Revelation 5, beginning in verse 1, John wrote, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then it began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand, of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation." You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and a number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea, all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's quite a scene that John is recording for us. He was taken up to heaven and he's writing down what he was commanded to write. And I mentioned this before, one of my desires as an early baby believer Christian, like I wanted to be just a fly on the wall and have an, have an insight or an idea into what heaven is like and what the Father is like. And if I, there was a peephole that I can see through, if I would even be so privileged to be able to look We're there. And he wrote it down for us. When we first read it, a lot of it is going to go over our head, which is why we're going at the pace that we're going so that we can try to absorb the many facets of this great vision. So with that, let's look at verse 2 one more time. John wrote, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And I'll say this as a side note. See how verse 2 starts with, and I saw? That lends itself that this is to be taken sequentially and chronologically. And I went through a whole, I went through the entire book and I've shared these markers 
without throughout this book. The way the book is written and the way John recorded it, it's to be understood sequentially and chronologically. And sadly, there are some Bible teachers and commentaries that will mix up the book. And I can see that tendency because when you go to like uh, the book of Genesis, for example, in chapters 1 and 2, we get the creation account. But then chapter 3 is more focused on what happened on day 6. But the scripture gave us a time marker on when to go back. But just generally speaking, when it comes to the book of Revelation, it just flows. And I will call out these markers that lets us know we are to look at it this and then this and then this and then this. So when we're to understand it, it's the same way. This and then this and then this and then this. In verse 2, we're introduced to a strong angel. In the Greek, iskyros, agalos. And I've said this many times. This activity here in chapter 5, verse 2 is further support that the seven stars or the seven agalos, which are over the seven churches, are angels, not men or pastors or leaders over the seven churches. When we get to chapter 5, verse 2, this angelic activity is picking up and we're introduced to this strong angel. Throughout this entire book, there's angelic activity, beginning with the seven angels over the seven churches and then what follows from there. And this angelic activity is picking up with this strong angel's proclamation. Strong, or eskiros, means mighty, strong. When it is used to describe a person or an angel, it has the idea of being a valiant warrior. So this angel who's making this proclamation is a strong angel. He's like a valiant warrior, probably over one of, angels, one of the armies of heaven. And this particular angel was proclaiming is kiroso, and this Proclaiming in the Greek, it also means to be a herald or to preach or be a preacher. This strong angel was a preacher, was making a proclamation, was a herald among his fellow angels. But I want to talk a little bit about this Greek, kiroso. It's the same word to you that Peter used to describe what Jesus did after he died. And I think some of us are familiar with this Somewhat mysterious passage. We're picking it up in 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation, curioso, to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. 1 Peter 3 gives us a nugget of truth in terms of what hap- where did Jesus go when he died? When he was put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit, and Peter tells us, in which he also made proclamation. He preached to the spirits now in prison. Who were, and which spirits were those? Those were the ones that were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. There's lots of 
nuggets of truth in this particular passage. But some of us are familiar with the Nephilim. And when the scripture tells us that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and cohabitated with them. The sons of God are angels. If you look at sons of God and you look at the rest of that designation in scripture, it's referring to angels. So there are particular angels that left their abode, cohabitated with women in the days of Noah. And because of that, God punished them by keeping them in prison. But when Christ died and was put, made alive in the Spirit, He preached to those spirits that were held in prison, proclaiming who He is and what He's achieved and what He has overcome. But perhaps... <laughs> This strong angel in Revelation 5.2, I like to call him the Baptist preaching angel. And this strong angel's proclamation and message was, who was worthy to open, the, to open the book and to break open its seals? In verse 3, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. This verse alone gives us all the extremities of creation we have in heaven we have on the earth and we have under the earth i want to ask us some questions so this proclamation was made my question to us is on what side of heaven was this proclamation made in the heavenlies was it made on this side of heaven bound by time space or both this preaching angel this herald asked the question, who is worthy? And he looked in all extremes. So not only was he a valiant warrior, he's probably pretty fast. He can cover all of space and creation. May I propose to us that the answer to that question is where John is in this vision. And that is, this proclamation was made in the heavenlies. Why is that? Did you hear a proclamation? I didn't hear one. But this was made, and someone was found worthy after the search was done. And John is in heaven when he's recording where this proclamation is happening. So that steers me to say that this proclamation was done in the heavenlies. And I want to make a little conjecture here. Side truth. If this proclamation was made in the heavenlies, the heavenlies is the unseen realm where heaven is, where God is, where the heavenly hosts are. And the conjecture I want to make is that because this proclamation was made in these three extremities, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, this supports when Paul says, for example, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, and principalities in the heavenly places. So right now, on earth, on earth, right now, there's angelic activity. On earth, right now. And I think it's quite apparent, depending on what that activity is, where we see the greatest demonic or evil influence. But this proclamation was made in heaven and on earth. It would include any of the angels that are on earth. And this other kind of mysterious nugget it says under the earth let me ask us a question where's under the earth under the earth under the earth 
This angel made this proclamation in heaven, on earth, and went under the earth. Where did Jesus go? Down. If you ask me where I'm leaning towards this time, and there's this mysterious place called the abyss. Under the earth, or this place of darkness, utter darkness, and the abyss. You know, there's some mystery. But if these are the three extremities in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, unless you're going to take the position, well, in heaven is where the abyss is. Well, well, it depends what part of heaven, I guess, or what part of the heaven leaves. But it's also possible, like for example, when Paul says in Romans 10, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as this, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, where are the dead? Under the earth. And when Jude says, for example, and angels who do not keep their own domain but abandon their proper abode, he kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And later we will see that there is an angel over the abyss named Abaddon in the Hebrew or Apollyon in the Greek. So that is to say, under the earth, there's probably some spirits under this earth that we live in right now that we can't get to on this side of heaven, but in the unseen, somehow it's under this earth. And here's some brownie points, and I kind of gave the answer. Which of, the above, which of these three places, in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, did Jesus go to proclaim to the angels who sinned in the days of Noah are being held? There are, there are spirits now in prison. Where is that? Under the earth. There's just some mystery about under the earth. Now, technically, it's below sea level. That's under the earth. But there is this on the other side of the heavenlies is a place of utter darkness where the spirits are being held. And that's where it could include these angels who sinned in the days of Noah. And if this sounds a little far-fetched, how many people live on this planet right now? Is it about, what, 7, 8 billion? And this earth is nowhere close to being fully populated. So do you think there's a lot of room within the earth to hold spirits now in prison in darkness? I don't think it's far-fetched. But just for here, this angel made this proclamation, and this idea is he went through all extremities of all of creation. He went in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and no one was found worthy to open the book or to break its seals. Then we'll pick it up in verse 4. Then John, he said, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. He said, John began to weep greatly. Klao, polis. In the Greek, this isn't just, man, it's sad. Shed a tear. It denotes deep wailing. Lament. He was in despair. Think about the greatest pain that you can feel in those emotions when you're lamenting and you're mourning whatever that is that's the idea here when john when this this strong angel went through all of these extremities and made this proclamation and he's trying to find who's worthy to take the book from him who sits on the throne and to break its seals at first there was no one found and because of that he lamented and mourned this is what it implies 
If no one was found worthy to break open the book or look into it, then all of creation is doomed. That's why John lamented. And that's why he mourned. Because whatever is in that book, there needs to be someone who is worthy to break it so that there's hope for His creation. So there's this hope of restoration of His creation. So that there's hope of salvation. Why else would John weep if no one was found worthy to break open this book? That's the implication. This is a big deal. But someone encourages John in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, he said, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So one of the 24 elders spoke up and encouraged John. Right here, this is proof that these 24 elders are 24 living beings. This is where it boggles my mind the more and more we go into this where there's any teachings that say, oh, the 24 elders is somewhat symbolic. Let's just say someone taught or held the view and said, oh, the 24 elders is really the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the church and Israel as one. Okay, what are you going to do with verse 5? Did this, symbol, this symbolic Israel or symbolic church tell John, hey, cheer up, John. It's kind of silly. No, one of the elders spoke up and encouraged him and said, quoting him, stop weeping. This person's speaking a living being. <laughs> the lion from, that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Again, further proof that these are 24 elders, 24 living beings, and as I suggested, were redeemed likely as part of Christ's resurrection when there is a special group that was raised as kind of the first fruits of first fruits. Also in verse 5, there were several descriptions of that special figure. It was lion from Judah, root of David, and has overcome. And I want to walk through these. I think we know the answer, and I've given us the answer even in passing. We know who this special figure is. I can tell you that the Lion from Judah is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Root of David is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has overcome. And we can just continue on. But whenever there's an opportunity to show you He is the Lion from Judah... He is the root of David, and He has overcome. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, it brings great relevance that the Scripture is in fact from the Holy One. And it's His Holy Word. And that it is something that has been compiled in His progressive revelation and has been continuous in its epochs of time with several prophecies concerning the Messiah. So I'd like to show you through Scripture that this is in fact prophesied in the Old Testament. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, when Israel is dying, Israel was Jacob, who was later renamed Israel. When he was dying and he was giving his parting words, 
he was also prophesying and speaking forward God's word and his redemptive will and plan. And part of his dying words was in Genesis 49, beginning in verse 9. He says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In Shiloh, it's the only time it's used here in the entire Old Testament, but it's a messianic title, and Shiloh means he whose it is. When you get to Hosea, the priests in Hosea 5, the priests along with the house of Israel, they're being rebuked by this prophet for their disobedience, and he's warning them of impending judgment. We'll pick it up in verse 14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away, and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So even if you were to follow God's word and his progressive revelation, when Israel introduced us to this Shiloh coming from the line of Judah, as the progressive revelation unfolds, not only is he going to be the Messiah of man, but this same lion from the house of Judah will pay a visit to his people and cause affliction then return to his place until they repent and acknowledge their guilt and seek their face. Hosea 5 is prophecy that Messiah will come and deal with them, return back, lest they acknowledge their guilt and seek his face. So the Messiah is not only here to save, but to punish and discipline as well. And when you hear Lion from Judah as one of Jesus' designations. It's also speaking of his actual genealogy. Jesus was, in fact, from the line of Judah. And when we read the Scriptures, when we get to the genealogy part, I think we all, for the most part, just kind of skim through it. But those genealogies that has been recorded for us demonstrates that Jesus was, in fact, from the line of Judah and a son of David. And we won't go into it because it's fairly lengthy. But when you get into the genealogy that Matthew recorded for us in chapter 1, he was looking forward from Abraham and then ultimately to his parents, Joseph and Mary. And when you get to Luke's account of the genealogy of our Lord, he is looking backwards from Adam to Joseph and Mary. But... This title, Lion from Judah, also speaks of his genealogy, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ is from the line of Judah, the line of David. So this lion that is from the tribe of Judah, it has its roots and origin in the Old Testament. If you even go to the very first book in Genesis with Israel's parting words, it was affirmed by Hosea's prophecy in Messiah's role in his dealings with the house of Israel 
and it was confirmed by lineage as recorded by both Matthew and Luke. So the Old Testament and New Testament is one story. And when it comes to this figure of this lion from Judah, it began even in Genesis, confirmed by the Old Testament prophets, and then also further confirmed by the New Testament authors. So now I want to look at the next description of this special figure. He's also called the Root of David. If you're taking notes, another way to say Root of David, it's this son of David, a descendant of David. That's what Root of David means. It's also speaking of your lineage. But because we've touched on that, we don't need to demonstrate that. But what I want us to do is that this designation of Root of David, it also has its roots in the Old Testament but in particular, the Davidic covenant that was recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I've read this a few times during the course of this journey, and I want us to read it again. In 2 Samuel 7, the context is David desired to build a temple for God. And in response to that, God sent Nathan to him and deliver a message. And we'll pick it up in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, here's what the instructions that was in the conversation between God and Nathan the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Here's the message to David. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Here's where we're going to get to the root of David implication here. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. We're now introduced to this promise, you can even say covenant, that God is making with David. Verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He's saying, from your lineage, from your root, I will raise up a descendant after you and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I want to pause here really quick in verse 13. Now that we're making some progress and learnings, when I first read verse 13, and he shall build a house for my name, I was thinking some way, somehow, that there was going to be this temple that's built on earth by Messiah. But now that when we look at this as a whole and taking our learnings into consideration, this building a house for his name is his kingdom. It's the house of David in which our Lord has the key for it. So this prophecy, when he says, He shall build a house for my name, and I shall establish the throne of his kingdom forever, it's pointing to the Davidic kingdom that is yet to come. 
Verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Here's the Davidic covenant. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Here's my case in point. Just as the lion from the tribe of Judah was prophesied and rooted in the Old Testament, so too this root of David designation or description was prophesied and rooted in the Old Testament, beginning with the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 2, and now up to and including the book of Revelation. And then let's look at the last piece of verse 5, has overcome. One of the 24 elders proclaimed, stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. That, those two words, has overcome, it's packed with truth and significance. For starters, overcome is nikao. It could also mean conquer, to conquer or prevail over. Thus, this lion from Judah, this root of David, already conquered and prevailed over something. That's why they, one of the elders said, Stop weeping, John. Behold, the lion that is from Judah, the root of David, has overcome, has already overcome, has already conquered, has already prevailed. But the question is, over, it's over what? Whatever was overcome must have happened before the penning of this book. That means that it was before 95 or 96 AD because that's why this elder said he already overcame. And I want to ask us a couple of questions. I'm going to ask the first question for this study and I'm going to save the second question for part two at the end of that study. But I want to ask us a question. What did Jesus overcome? That this elder that was cheering up John said, said, stop weeping, stop wailing, stop lamenting. Because the line that is from Judah, this root of David, has overcome. My question to us, what? Any guesses? Wow. (laughs) I was going to give us a hint. I didn't need to give a hint. But here, hey... You're impressing me right now because it could have been sin, death, angels, Satan, which are all true. But what specifically did he overcome? And in Jesus' high priestly prayer, this is what he told his disciples. He goes, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Very good. He's overcome the world. He's overcome creation. This, this creation. This fallen creation where there is this reality of sin and death. Where there is this reality of this rebellion in the heavenly places. He has overcome all that. And that's why this one elder told John, stop. He already conquered. He already prevailed the world. And because of that, He alone was found worthy as to open the book and to break its seals. 
Meaning, it's no surprise to us that there's no other person or being in all of creation who was found worthy. Remember, this strong angel searched heaven, searched the earth, searched under the earth. And no one was found worthy except this one that was spoken of in the Old Testament and prophesied who was from Judah, who was a root of David, a son of David, a descendant of David. He already conquered. Which means, just to do our due diligence here, the good angels who didn't rebel, didn't join Satan in the angelic rebellion, not even any of them were found worthy because none of them were eligible to begin with. It took the perfect sacrifice and atonement of our Lord who left heaven, came to earth, took upon himself human flesh so that he could be the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. But there was no one in all creation, whether it's in the angelic realm or any human being, was found worthy except this one. He is the blessed one. He is the favored one. He is the lion from Judah, the root of David, the one the Old Testament and New Testament authors have written about. Let's continue on with our text in verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now hopefully, as we start to get comfortable with how we've been handling the Scripture, with our rules of engagement, with just using Scripture with Scripture to the extent we can, when we see something like this, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, we're like, what is that all about? But hopefully as we continue with our disciplines, you can get a little more comfortable with it. But I want to look at two things in this verse. As if slain, and seven horns and seven eyes. So after all this, when John was taken into heaven, beginning in chapter 4, the focus has been him who sits on the throne and describes him who sits on the throne and what's coming out of the throne. When we finally get to chapter 5, our attention is now drawn from him who sits on the throne, but now to this lamb as if slain. The Father has been getting the spotlight this whole time, and now the spotlight is turning to this key figure, a lamb as if slain. I know we can read that in passing, as if slain. That's an indication that that lamb was killed, but is alive. And for this, I'd like to cross-reference when John saw him earlier in chapter 1 as the glorified Son of Man. John wrote there in verse Chapter 1, verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. If we were to take the truth that our Lord proclaimed in chapter 1, and we apply that to the Lamb in this concerning the lamb and this vision, it could be said this way. 
that the lamb as if slain is the living one who was dead, but is behold is alive forevermore. And this lamb is not only raised alive forevermore, but he has seven horns and seven eyes. Let's do this again. Remember, I'm trying not to make this as mysterious as we can. What does seven mean? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay? Seven eyes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's why I picked this particular vision. Because this lamb has seven horns with seven eyes. Here's to hopefully not make this so mysterious. We're going to take the learnings that we've learned in this book. In chapter 1, John saw other sets of seven. Seven golden lampstands and seven stars in Jesus' right hand. Here's the neat thing. The interpretation of that vision was given. The passage told us that the seven golden lampstands represents the seven churches. And the seven stars in Jesus' right hand represents the seven agalos, the seven angels over those seven churches. Take it for what it says. Doesn't mean completeness. Doesn't mean anything more than that. Although God likes to do things in sevens. Yeah, there's a, seven, there's a six day creation. He rested on the seventh day. There's some significance to it. But there were, were seven golden lampstands and seven stars in Jesus' right hand. And the scripture defined what that, seven, that set of seven represents. Thankfully, when we get to this verse, seven horns and seven eyes, the passage tells us what those seven horns and seven eyes represents. Verse 6, look at it again. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. It tells us which are the seven spirits of God. This vision of this lamb as if slain with seven horns and seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. So if you were to take the learning from the seven golden lampstands, even though he saw lampstands, those lampstands represents the seven first century churches that we studied. One lampstand for each church. When John saw seven stars in his right hand, those seven stars represented the seven angels over those seven churches. When we get here, this lamb as if slain, when he's saying he has seven horns and seven eyes, He tells us it's the seven spirits of God. How many spirits? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven spirits. Not one spirit. It doesn't mean one Holy Spirit. It's not symbolic to mean completeness or anything along those lines. This lamb as if slain that had seven horns and seven eyes are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven spirits of God. Seven. Of them. How can I be certain of that? How can you be certain of that? Because we're allowing Scripture to tell us. Just as the seven stars, again, seven angels over the seven churches, or seven seals, or seven seals, so too are the seven spirits of God, seven angels sent out into all the earth. Here's what I mean by this. And this is where it gets crazy, okay? I don't think people maybe realizing the fallacy. You can't say that the seven stars mean seven angels 
or the seven lampstands you know, represents the seven churches in one place, and then you get to this part, oh, the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit. Wait, you're not, what, are you, what are you doing? You can't, you can't say this in one place and then say it here another place. You can't pick and choose. Do you see why there's madness when it comes to handling the book of Revelation? They're not even being consistent in how they're handling the visions. Handle it the way the Scripture gave it. It gave us the interpretation of what these seven means or represents. These sets of seven. And that's why we laid out our ROEs before our study because I don't want to do that to you too. I don't want to say, yep, it's seven lampstands, seven churches, seven stars, seven angels, but here seven spirits of God is really the Holy Spirit. I don't want to do that. we got to follow some disciplines to minimize those things. Since the text says that the seven horns and seven eyes is the seven spirits of God, that's what I'm going to accept. That these seven spirits are seven angels who were sent out by the Lamb into all the earth. Not the Holy Spirit, okay? Are we getting this? Not Because the Holy Spirit was already sent at Pentecost and indwelt believers since then. This is different. He's speaking of, not of the Holy Spirit, but of seven angels. Here's a conjecture here. Why seven horns and seven eyes in this vision representing seven angels? Here's a spoiler. It so happened that when the seventh seal is broken, seven trumpets will be given to seven angels. And it's lining up that these seven spirits that are sent out into all the world will be given seven trumpets to blow, each one having a trumpet that will bring forth a specific outcome, judgment, and in some cases, finally, the blessing and the reward. So that's where I'm inclined now. That's where it's falling. And unless the Scripture takes us to another direction, that's why these seven spirits, these seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, are seven angels, and so far, they're the likely candidates to be given these seven horns when the seventh seal is broken and they be sent out into all the earth. And let's continue on. Good thing I cut this in half. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He came. The lamb approached the throne and he took the book sealed with seven seals out of the Father's right hand. I know when we read this, kind of maybe gloss over it, this is significant. Remember, John wept and wailed earlier because no one was found worthy at that time, but then one of the elders comforted him. Here's why it's significant. That this means that this Lamb is the true Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. This is significance because this means that this lamb is the only being in all of creation, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, who was found worthy before the Father in heaven. And to borrow the words of John the Baptist, he is the true lamb who takes away the sins of the world. But before he can take away sin, he first must break open the seals because lamentations, mourning, and woes 
must happen first before we can receive our full salvation. So that takes us to the end of verse 7. We're going to pick up part 2 of this study next week in verse 8 and following. We deeply appreciate you studying along with us here at Truth Matters Church. It is truly amazing how the Old Testament ties so perfectly into the New Testament, and you really can't accurately interpret Scripture without both of them. Next week, we will continue our expository study in Revelation with part two of The Root of David. We encourage you to check out our website for hundreds of hours of expository teaching, truthmatterschurch.org, or simply search for us on Sermon Audio. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.